Welcome to the Practice of Theology. My name is Tyler Kirkpatrick, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I serve as one of the pastors of Cross Point Church in Columbus, Georgia. The Practice of Theology exists to help the local church engage theology on a deeper level and learn how it applies to daily life. Today, we have the privilege to enter into a conversation with Greg Gilbert to discuss the question, what is the gospel? Greg is the senior pastor of Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and has faithfully served in this role since 2010. Greg has authored a number of books that focus on equipping the local church to faithfully engage the Bible, including What is the Gospel? Who is Jesus? Can Women Be Pastors? What is the Mission of the Church? Why Trust the Bible? And the Book of James in Crossway's Knowing the Bible study series. Greg has also written for organizations like Crossway, The Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, and Nine Marks. To find out more about Greg, you can check out thirdavenue.org and follow him on Twitter at Greg Gilbert. I'm really pleased to have Greg with me on the podcast today. I trust that this conversation will be a blessing to you, and my hope is that the Lord might use it to shed the light of the gospel into the dark places of the world, and through this conversation that he might quicken unto life a lifeless heart. Greg, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It really is a pleasure to have you talking with us today about a really important topic, the gospel. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Really good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. So, the first question, um, it's uh, a no-brainer. What is the gospel? And the reason we have to ask this question is because answering what is the gospel also helps us to answer a similar question, what isn't the gospel? Yeah, that's right. Well, I I mean, just... Let's just start with definitionally. The word the word gospel means good news. Um, it is it, it's the message of Christianity that uh, that Jesus Himself proclaimed, and that uh, uh, you know even even before He arrived, the prophets were were giving us the outlines of this message that was going to be proclaimed. Um, and uh, after Jesus's resurrection and ascension, this is this is the message that the early Christians and the apostles preached throughout the world. So. Um, that that's what it is definitionally. As for what it is content-wise, it, it's just the very good news that even though we are sinners and rebels against God who created us, and because of that we deserve to to die spiritually, um, God is God of love and compassion and mercy, uh, and therefore He sent uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to become a human, to live as we should have lived from the beginning, to die the death that we deserve because of our sins, and then to rise again to. Uh, uh, to resurrection life, so that if if we any of us human beings will put our trust in Him and uh, bow to Him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, uh, we we will be forgiven and saved uh, from the consequences of our sin. Amen. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. Uh, so help us think through what are the essential elements um, that must be included when we explain the gospel? Because you have a lot of things. You've got death, you've got life, you've got resurrection, you've got sin, repentance, creation, so on and so forth. Um, what is essential to the gospel? Yeah, well, I, I think if you look through the the New Testament, you can look at the, the sermons and acts, you can look at the way uh, Paul uh, wrote the gospel in the book of Romans, the way he, he describes it other places. It looks to me like there are basically four major questions that the, the, the early Christians always answered when they were proclaiming the message of Christianity. Mm. Uh, so the first of those, those questions is to whom are we accountable? Uh, and the answer is God. We're, we're accountable to the God who created us. Every, every time you, you see the, the gospel preached in the book of Acts, uh, at, at the beginning of Romans, this is where this is where Paul starts. 
uh, is that we're accountable to the God who, who created us. Second question they will always ask and answer is, uh, you know, what's the human problem? Uh, why, why do things go wrong? Is it sociological problems? Is it, you know, this or that? And the answer that they, that they give is everything has gone wrong for human beings because of sin, because we have rebelled against God, both as individuals and as a human race. Uh, but that's the second one. Third one, of course, is what, what is God's solution to that problem? If there is one, right? He's not under obligation to give us a solution, uh, other than just wiping us out, but, uh, he does. He sends, he sends Jesus, um, the second person of the Trinity, uh, to become a human being, live, die, rise again. That's God's solution to the problem. And then the fourth thing they always talk about is what, therefore, is our response to this to this solution and and what they say is faith and repentance which are which are kind of two sides of the same coin right mm-hmm. but those four things seem to be what they organized the presentation of the gospel around so god humanity's sin uh jesus christ's person and work and then the response that that we're to give to that right so the, the little shorthand the sort of back of the napkin shorthand that that i use is just god man christ response right you just you just keep those major headings in your mind, God, man, Christ response. Uh, and when you're having a conversation with somebody about the gospel, you talk about all four of those things at some point, and you, you've basically got the whole uh, proclamation. That was going to be a question later. What's your favorite kind of paradigm for sharing the gospel? So, obviously, God, man, Christ response. Uh, so, when you're doing that, do you always start with God and end with response? Or, you know, if someone's listening and they're like, okay, I've never even heard of that, um, maybe walk us through how you you might use it in just a casual conversation with an unbeliever. Yeah, I mean it depends, right? If I if I get a shot to just sort of tell the story of the gospel, then then I'll pretty well step through it uh, mm-hmm. in, in that in that order. God, man, Christ response. But if it's a if it's just a give and take conversation, you know, if I'm sitting next to somebody on a plane, or if we're just striking up a conversation at a, one of my kids' ball games or something like that, I'll just shuck and jive with it. You know, mm-hmm. you know, they may. It, the, the opportunity may present itself to, to, I don't know, define faith first, you know, and then you sort of back up and fill in the fill in the rest of it. I, you know, bounce back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. Just just make sure that you're clear on all four. The use of having that kind of checklist, though, God, man, Christ response. Mm-hmm. I can mentally check off what we've talked about. You know, we had that conversation about Jesus. Uh, you know, and I explain. It's hard to explain what Jesus did on the cross without explaining God and man. Right. So you end up talking about them all uh, in the process, but you know you you can sort of keep a mental checklist of of what you've what you've hit hard and what you haven't yet. Right. No, and I think that is really helpful. Like you're saying, just having a sort of checklist to make sure you can walk away from a conversation thinking oh, I hit all of the major tenets of the gospel. I didn't I didn't leave anything out that may kind of confuse this person. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, if you're leaving out man, for instance, they may walk away thinking, oh, well, there's just this great God who just accepts me for me and uh, here I am. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the use of it is, is uh, e- even in the negative, is just sort of f- like setting off alarm bells if you haven't talked about right. one piece of it. Like, oh gosh, I talked about Jesus and salvation and all the rest, but I didn't tell this guy how to become a Christian. You know, that's right. bad. I should, I should fill in that hole. Well, and I mean, you're a pastor, I'm a pastor. How many member interviews have we sat in where we said, can you explain the gospel to me? And people are like, Oh my goodness, I know the gospel, but I'm freaking out right now. Um, it just oh, yeah. gives you a, uh, you can you can recall that under pressure. That's right. Right. If you are in some sort of uh, argument with an atheist, uh, you you have what you need to, to get the conversation going. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, 
In the opening question, I had mentioned one reason to define the gospel clearly is so we can also define clearly what it is not. So let's talk about some of the common misrepresentations of the gospel uh, and why they're not really the gospel. Uh, there have been books written and, and theologians often, uh, a lot of people, preachers, pastors, people in churches, refer to them as the counterfeit gospels. And I'm thinking particularly of three of the more prevalent that would be dangerous to a church like ours. So therapeutic, moralistic, and social. And the reason I leave prosperity out is because by and large, I think a lot of churches that are are solid, they're not super susceptible to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but why are these counterfeits? Why would we not say that these are also the gospel? Yeah, well, let's, I mean, let, let's back in, back up and, and sort of define each one of those. So, mm-hmm. I could take a guess at what you mean by the therapeutic gospel, but give, give me quick paragraph. Right. So, when I would think of a therapeutic gospel, I would think of coming in on a Sunday and a preacher saying, here's how you can have a better Monday. Yeah. And so, kind of serving as your your personal therapist to help you have a better week. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you can you can sort of run down the uh, the, the list of God, man, Christ response and see, see how that, how that adds up. You know, what, what would a therapeutic gospel say about God? Uh, it would probably, uh, say that God is the, the great physician, maybe even psychologist in the sky. Um, uh, you're, you're probably not going to get a whole lot about God's wrath being one of his perfections mm. because, uh, in therapy, the last thing you want is, is for your psychologist to be a psychologist of wrath. That doesn't, that doesn't compute. Um, the brokenness of humanity in a, in a therapeutic gospel is going to be something different from you have rebelled against God. It's, a, right. it's almost, a, you know, it's almost a political thing. Like there is a king and you have declared war on him. That's, that's the biblical story. Therapeutic gospel is just going to say something more like y- your problem is uh, mental, it's psychological. You, you're, you're emotionally broken. You're a, you're a victim of this or that thing and what god can do is heal that you know brokenness but you're not going to get very much about the fact that you're you know a bloody-handed rebel against the majesty of god um you're probably not going to get a whole lot about atonement either in a therapeutic right. people it's just going to be jesus as shepherd you know petting the little the little baby sheep that he's that he's holding on to in the stained glass window uh, but you're probably not going to get a whole lot about a bloody cross atonement. Mm. And then the response may be similar and, you know, it may be a kind of faith, but it's going to be faith in God to do that kind of stuff we've talked about rather than a sort of desperate trust in Jesus to die the death that you are supposed to die for your rebellion. So it's just, that's just going to be a very different sort of thing. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, and I honestly, I, I feel like, in a lot of larger popular churches, and and there's no reason to name names now, but you do have a lot of this kind of man-centeredness to everything that happens from the moment you come into the door, but then especially when it comes to worship through song and prayer, scripture reading, and then the sermon, certainly, it's almost like it's hyper-focused on the person sitting there, when in reality, the worship service is not worship of us, it's worship of God. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a strategy. Mm. Uh, and the strategy is if you can identify and at least, at least be making an effort to meet people's felt needs, uh, then they'll be more likely to, to have a positive opinion of Christianity and your church. The, the trouble mm-hmm. though is that you make everything about felt needs, 
uh, and uh, y- you wind up preaching a different gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, the gospel of the Bible is not, it, it, it's, the gospel of the Bible does not come alongside people. It confronts people. It arrests them in their ignorance mm-hmm. and tells them something that is true that they don't necessarily feel, right? It's a proclamation from on high to a rebellious world. Uh, and, and that is not the same thing as coming alongside, which is a phrase you hear a whole lot about. Right, right. All right. So the moralistic gospel. So maybe a, a short way to define it would be um, a gospel that is hyper-focused on what man must do. So maybe uh, in a traditional church, it could be you have to walk forward to the front. You have to pray this prayer. Uh, but maybe in other churches, it could be a, a whole host of things where uh, we don't do these certain things. Um, and so kind of adding a lot of boxes, um, maybe extra biblical kind of law on top of that. Uh, why is that not the gospel? Yeah, well, the, the danger in that, of course, I mean, there, there, are, there are definite imperatives and commands in the Bible that are, mm-hmm. you know, the, the command to repent and believe is, is a command, right? So there's, mm-hmm. there is something you have to, you have to do. But the heart of the gospel is grace, and it's it's a, a call for human beings to accept the grace of God, not to earn their way into His favor. Uh, and and anytime you anytime the the focus starts to shift from recognizing that Jesus has earned God's favor for me to now I have to earn God's favor, uh, then then you're you're putting yourself in massive danger of your faith shifting from Jesus to self. Um, and you know, I mean, even, even the most sort of theologically tooled up churches have to, have to worry about this because, uh, it's very easy for the, the theological category of sanctification to, to so overshadow justification that you start to believe that my present, my, my presence in the favor of God is due to my sanctification. Uh, and, and the justification that Jesus won for you just kind of gets eclipsed in your mind. And faith begins to shift from him to how is my sanctification going this week? And at that point, you're, you're in danger of not believing the gospel of Jesus, but, you know, some other self, self-reliant self kind of thing. Yeah, right, right. Uh, and, and I think, honestly, for, for churches like ours, I, I would assume that I think a therapeutic gospel is always kind of more... Uh, maybe the difficulty of the week driving us towards like, what do you have for me today? But I think more than that, like you're saying, like the moralistic gospel, it's just a way for kind of us to feel like we're in control of something when it may feel like things are actually out of control. Um, And so I I think that probably that is one of the greatest threats for us in terms of confusing the gospel, um, even if not intentionally. Well, I was just going to say, it's just a very uh, non-human thing to do to sort of declare moral bankruptcy and say, I'm utterly dependent on somebody else for anything good that happens to me. We just don't, nobody wants to do that. Right. And, and if, you, if you do ever get to that point of doing that, the human heart wants to claw its way back to self-reliance as quickly as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's true in, in every field. You know, you declare financial bankruptcy at some point, that's kind of throwing yourself on the mercy of the court. But most human hearts are going to want to claw back to financial stability and self-reliance as fast as possible. Yep. And we tend to do that spiritually and morally too. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, and then finally, the the social gospel. And so, uh, I, I would define this one as um, 
maybe a, a church or maybe it can be an individual person, but rallying around the outcome of the gospel being the most important thing. So the gospel changing um, maybe our city. Uh, and so we end up taking that on through some sort of political initiative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a that takes a lot of different forms. Uh, and it, it, it has a lot of different forms now. And it certainly has through through the years. Um, but but basically, what you end up with there is is something again, different from you know, the good news is that even though we're rebels, we can be saved through Jesus. You you end up with something like the good news is that God is making the world a better place to live in for human beings. He's about that work. Uh, and the good news is that he's called us to join him in that work of making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'll see it in all kinds of forms. You know, let's, we're going to transform the city, transform the world, uh, bring shalom to our neighborhoods, all, all this. Kind of stuff. All right. Uh, uh, but that's a very different message, again, than um, we, we can be saved from our sins through Jesus. And even if it's a kind of add-on, uh, I just don't think that that is the sort of story that the Bible tells about the role and kind of future of human stuff in societies, right? I, mm -hmm. You know, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a triumphant march from glory to glory to glory until we all just find ourselves in the new heavens and new earth, right? right? There, there is a cataclysm at the end. Um, so I just, and, and the, the story of the Bible really does for human society seems to be, uh, it all heads downhill, right? I mean, sometimes it takes decades, sometimes centuries, human societies always go downhill spiritually and morally. And then there's a kind of great reset where God puts everything back on, you know, back on footing. Mm -hmm. And then the slide just continues until he resets the whole thing again. And, uh, the final one of those seems to be that there's going to be a slide downhill among human society until the final great reset happens when uh, when Jesus comes back and puts everything to right. Right. Um, but but I, I just the, there's no promise in the Bible. I mean, it drives me crazy when churches like make it their their thing that we are we are going to transform our city. Right. Well, there is no promise in the Bible that you are going to transform your city, mm. you know, even by preaching that there's just no promise of that. Uh, there's no promise that if you get a critical mass of Christians in a certain place, that the structures of society change. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, there are what, 200 million or something uh, Chinese Christians now in, in the nation of China. That's our mm -hmm. best guess. That They haven't managed to change the structures of their, of their society because they just don't have the power, right? There's no promise of that in the Bible. And if you, as a pastor, convince your people that there is a promise that they're going to transform their city and they work, 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 and then look up 15 years from now. And, you know, the city, it, it, there's still sex trafficking in the city mm -hmm. and there's still housing slums in the city and there's still drug lords in the city and the city's not transformed. Well, you're going to have convinced them that God lied to them when he said they could transform their city. You know, I think it's much better to say there's no promise of that. Sometimes the Lord allows that to happen through the preaching of the gospel. Still, Still, we should do good things to try to bring good in the world, but there's no promise that 15 years from now, all these problems are going to be uh, eradicated. Right. So, don't think there is. Right. And I even think that gives you, if you have that mindset, that gives you the, the ability to press on and doing good things, you know, for 85 years, mm -hmm. even if you don't see uh, even measurable change. You just do good things because right. good things are good. 
Right. Well, and I mean, the common thread between all of those is uh, instead of having a Christ-centered gospel, you you have a man-centered gospel. Yeah. So, I grew up in a church, um, a very traditional missionary Baptist church, and I remember kind of this phrase, fire insurance, uh, being something that I knew when I was really young. I don't know why. I don't know who told me. Um, but there, there was a lot of talk about going forward, um, believing the gospel, accepting the gospel, um, and then living your life. Uh, so, my question for you is, what uh, continuing role does the gospel play in the life of a believer, or is it simply to get saved? Um, it, I mean, yeah, the reason, that's, the reason that's so bad, and, you know, people make fun of it with phrases like fire insurance, is that, that once this radical change takes place in you, that you understand the good news of Jesus, it's, it's life altering. You don't just, I mean, a fire insurance policy, you buy it, you stick it in your lockbox and you, you never, you never look at it again until the house burns mm-hmm. down. Right. Right. Uh, that is not Christianity. You know, Christianity is life altering. Uh, and, uh, you know, the gospel is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's the foundation of the whole thing. I mean, I preach the gospel every single week to the 700 members of my church mm-hmm. and they get it they get it every week from from different angles different texts all the rest um but but they get it and it's what sustains us uh in in the christian life so you you never get away from it it's it's not something you just set on the shelf and uh you know pull out at the moment of your death it's it's a life altering thing mm-hmm. to realize who you are and who god is uh and what jesus has done for you right right so that's kind of why. I mean, we we need that constant reminder. You preach the gospel every week at your church. We preach the gospel every week at our church. Um, so, why do we so easily disremember uh, the magnificent truth of God's work in Christ for us? Why is it that we need to be reminded week after week? Well, our hearts are sleepy, right? I mean, he. I'm preaching through the Book of Hebrews, and uh, one of the, you know, one of the one of the main. Uh, exhortations in that book is is don't drift away right you don't don't neglect this great salvation that we have our hearts are sleepy um that you know even after we become christians we're not we're, we're just not able to sustain uh you know an, an active focus on what really matters for very long because we're because we're weak human beings um and so we tend to drift we tend to let other things intrude on our consciousness and our attention um uh, the pressures of the world will often cause us to smooth out the rough edges of the gospel. You know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, I think, I think most of the time when a church or a person or a generation abandons the gospel for something less, it, it, it's never a malicious thing going on in their hearts, right? It's sometimes an insidious, devilish thing that's going on, but it's, it's not malicious. It's not like they wake up in the morning and say, today, we're going to abandon this portion of the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's almost always an effort to uh, make the gospel more palatable to the world. It's almost always evangelistically driven. Mm-hmm. And so, depending on what the world is thinking about and offended by on this particular year or whatever, uh, you shift the message of the gospel just a little bit to try to get through those defenses. But over time, you you end up losing the whole thing as you make it more palatable to people. So, I think one of the most important calls that, that the church has in each generation is to preserve the sharp edges of the gospel. You know, the things that tend to make sinners angry about the gospel are the things we need to preserve um, uh, because they've made sinners angry since 
since the gospel was first proclaimed and we need to proclaim the same one. Mm, right. Amen. Amen. Uh, so is the, is the gospel the only way to be saved? I mean, if this God that we believe in the Bible is so big, he's so powerful, couldn't he use other religions to save people? Is, is the gospel really the exclusive message of salvation? Oh, yeah. Y- yeah, it is. And, and the logic in that, of course, is that uh, there, there is one son of God. And uh, God's, God's whole program is not just to save people, right? That, that's not the program. The program is to glorify the son through salvation. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's going to be the name of Jesus that is, that is honored and exalted. So, so the way God has determined that he's going to do that is to put forth his son and say, this is the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. This is, the, and, and he's, he's human, right? He's incarnate. And so to the entire fallen human race, he says, all of you, if, if you'll come to him and him alone and bow your knee to him in faith, uh, you'll be saved. So in, in that logic, if the, if the logic of the whole universe is bring glory to the singular son of God, the only begotten son of God, uh, then, then yeah, the, the, the message of salvation must be exclusive mm. to him. And do you think that exclusivity is, is that one of the things that unbelievers kind of have a distaste for or people who are uh, of other religions, kind of the exclusivity of our claim to getting into a right relationship with God through this one way? Oh yeah. Cause it looks, it, it just looks, I mean, it looks bigoted and that's what, that's what they'll, that's what the world will say about Christianity is if you're exclusive, you're bigoted. Mm. Um, you know, uh, everybody wants choices. Everybody wants options. Uh, you know, if I don't like this thing about Christianity, I want to be able to go over here to Islam or to, to Buddhism. If I don't like that, I want to be able to go to Sikhism or whatever it is. Um, so to be, to be told that no, there is one king, there is one great high priest, and it is Jesus the Christ does, does not sit well with, with the world. Right, right. All right. So, I want to turn the conversation just for a moment to preaching. Uh, and, and you mentioned it, and I, I told you that we do as well. But do pastors need to preach the gospel every time they open uh, God's word? And if they do, is it enough just to attach the gospel to the end of a sermon and ask people to respond to it? Uh, yeah, I think the answer is yes and sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, if, you, if you're a Christian preacher, you need to preach the Christian gospel. And you need to do that every time you every time you step into the pulpit to to preach. I don't know why you wouldn't do that anyway, because you know, I mean, there's a chance that somebody is sitting in your church uh, who is not a Christian, and it's going to be the only time that they are in your church. So I don't know why you wouldn't give that person enough to be saved mm. in that one time that they're that they're there, and that's going to be true every single week. Um, beyond that, though, I, your your people, Christian people, live and feed on the gospel. So, so your your program in your church, as as a preacher, ought to be to just massage the truth of the gospel into their hearts in a thousand different ways. You know, uh, and and that includes in your sermons. You know, talk about the gospel from every angle imaginable, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and text after text. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I do uh, what's called what's called expositional preaching, meaning I just I make my way through books of the Bible mm-hmm. from, from start to finish, just preaching the point of, of each text. And sometimes uh, uh, texts of the Bible are sort of right on the white hot center of the gospel. And so the whole sermon will be 
suffused. It'll just be an exposition of the gospel, mm. right? That, that's the whole sermon. Other times, I mean, I just preached a, a series on Proverbs, uh, and the themes of the gospel are in Proverbs, but it talks about a bunch of other stuff too, because it's just wisdom for, you know, living life well in God's, in God's world. But even in Proverbs, you know, I, I am on the hunt for the moment when I can, you know, run to the gospel and proclaim it uh, in, in a way that, that makes sense, right? That flows well. And I think you can always find that. Mm. Um, sometimes you'll, you'll get there through systematic theology, right? So any Old Testament text that you're in is going to say something about either God or human beings or sin or faith, right? Or, or atonement or sacrifice or something. So you can get there through, through just grabbing onto one of those themes and running to, running to the New Testament with it. Other times you can get there through uh, what's called biblical theology and you know, the storyline of the Bible. So uh, if you're preaching David and Goliath, right? I mean, the point of that is not have courage and slay your giants with God's help. That's mm -hmm. not the point. The point is that the rightful king of Israel at the time, who would eventually become the king of the universe, the rightful king of Israel fights his people's battles for them. Mm -hmm. He's their champion. And then, you know, if you just have a tiny bit of imagination, you can see how that theme lands on Jesus, the great champion who becomes king, is declared king, and then goes out into the wilderness to fight his people's great enemy, Satan, and beats him for us. So, yeah. Anyway, lots of different ways to get there, and I think you've got to uh, in every sermon. Right. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Um, okay. So, we, we hear this gospel. Uh, we believe it. We trust in it. Uh, does, does this now mean that the expectation is that we won't struggle with sin Oh gosh, no! I mean, John couldn't couldn't be any clearer about that. That if, if you if you say you don't struggle with sin anymore, you're a, you're a liar, and you make God a liar. So uh, we are we're in a battle. Once we become Christians, the thing is, if you're not a Christian, you're not in a battle. Your your heart is your heart is dead. It's bent away from God, and so there is no battle. The battle begins when you become a Christian, because all of a sudden your heart wakes up. Uh, and you find yourself saying something like Paul says in Romans 7 or that he talks about in Galatians 5 where uh, the, the spirit is at war with the flesh inside you. So, that, that's when the battle begins. Mm. It doesn't end until we're with Jesus, either, you know, the, the day we die, the minute, the second we die or the, the, when he comes back. Right. Amen. And I mean, what a witness to the unbelieving world that we don't feel that we have been saved and now we are somehow better than anyone else. We actually end up seeing our depravity much more clearly. And in a way, it serves as a, a witness to the grace of the gospel in realizing, hey, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I have found that savior, but I still struggle against the old man. Oh, yeah. And this grace is sufficient for you too. And the more the Lord shows you those sort of deep running deposits of sin in your heart, uh, the bigger the cross gets, you know. I, I've I've talked about it some. Uh, if you think of think of it as a graph, right, on a on a piece of paper, so to speak, you got one line that represents your understanding of the glory and holiness of God. And as you become a more mature Christian, that line through time gets higher and higher and higher because you're understanding God to be more and more holy. There's another line underneath that though that's your understanding of your own sin and depravity. And as time goes on, that gets lower and lower and lower. So the gap between you and God is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as you become a more mature Christian. And what is it that fills that in? It's the cross, right? So as you get more mature, you feel yourself to be more sinful, more depraved. You see it. God gets more holy to you. And in the gap, Jesus is getting bigger and bigger and mm. bigger and bigger to you. Mm. 
Yeah. Amen. So how would you encourage someone that you truly believe is a Christian and yet has deep struggles with their faith? You mean like uh, assurance of salvation kind of yeah. questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I uh, uh, wrote a book called Assured a couple of years ago. It didn't, it didn't sell a whole lot of copies, but I think it's a, <laughs> I still think it's a good book. Uh, and I, I, you know, I wish it had, wish it had gotten a little more um, attention, mm-hmm. mostly that I help people. Right. But uh, yeah, in that book, what I, what I talk about mostly is that uh, when Christians are having assurance of salvation struggles, for some reason, there's a there's a knee jerk reaction to to want to uh, spend a whole bunch of time and energy self evaluating and trying to fix whatever bad fruit or rotten fruit they they see on on their spiritual tree. Uh, the the trouble though is that if you want the tree, if you want the the, the fruit to get healthier, right? You have to tend to the root of the tree. You can't just spend a bunch of time painting the apples red or duct taping oranges onto the tree or, or whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You have to tend to the root. And, and how do you do that, you know, to get rid of the metaphor? Well, I think what you do is that you focus on uh, the truths of the gospel and the promises of God. And as you meditate on those and you, you really begin to hear the sort of no fine print promises that God makes, about Jesus, uh, I, I think I think your your the roots grow deep. Uh, you you start to feel more secure in the promises of God and the truths of the gospel. And what happens as you do that is that the fruit begins to get healthier, mm. right? Uh, so so I would tell I would tell people you know at first, how about we stop stop thinking about you and your fruit for a little bit, like for a few months. Let's just stop thinking about you and your fruit. And, and let's get you meditating on the glories of, of Jesus, uh, the greatness of the promises of God. Uh, and, and probably there are going to be some problems with the way you're doing your fruit inspection anyway mm. that, that sort of need to be tweaked. You're probably not doing that in the best way uh, uh, that you're supposed to. So, so we can talk about that later. Yeah. But you got to do the root. Right, right. Uh, and so I want to ask a straightforward because, I mean, I, I think as pastors, this is one of the things sometimes we often hear from people uh, can I can I really be a believer and have this much doubt about the way I'm living? Or sometimes I have questions about the Bible and and my faith, and I wouldn't have these questions if I was really a believer. So I can't be a believer. Um, is that is that possible to be that person and be saved? Yes, yes, of course. I mean, I mean, you know, the 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 guy in the the guy in the Bible who comes to Jesus. And is received by Jesus, who says, Lord, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. Should be like the patron saint of, of people who struggle with those kinds of questions. Right. I mean, he, so, he is so raw and so honest. I believe, help me with my unbelief, right? He's trying so hard, uh, but, but he knows where to run. He doesn't, he doesn't run away from Jesus. He runs to him for, for help with that. Uh, and, you, you know, you hope that guy sort of reconciled all of that at some point in his life. Who knows if he did? Uh, it doesn't matter. He ran to Jesus and Jesus received him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, it's possible to be that person. Um, you know, it, it's possible to be all kinds of, all kinds of believer in Jesus. Right, uh, so right. Don't, don't, yeah, if, if you got anybody listening, don't, don't be discouraged with that. Run to Jesus with all that unbelief. You know, ask those questions. Um, you know, I just, I, I think that guy is a good model for, right. for you. Right. Well, and I mean, I, I think the thing he does is he just kind of gives it all to the Lord 
And I think so often when like exactly what you said, my advice usually is just, hey, let's uh, let's like meditate on the cross. Like let's spend some time at the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. You are so caught up in how good or how bad you're doing. Just soak in the gospel. Just let the truth of the gospel saturate your life and be encouraged by it. Um, you, if you are a believer, cannot pluck yourself out of God's hand. Uh, it is not within your power. And plus, the fact that you are even concerned about this yeah, is a it. huge amount of assurance to me because, uh, unfortunately, unbelievers don't stay in that state for very long. Just, just walk away. Yeah, that's right. You, you're not going to stay upset for long. That's right. You don't care. If, if you have sort of, you know, I mean, the other category that people get scared of is the unpardonable sin, mm-hmm. right? sin against the Holy Spirit. If you're worried that you've committed that sin, you haven't committed that sin. Right. It's it, what it is, is, is a, a, an irrevocable hardening of the heart. Mm. So if, if it's such that you don't care about anything right. spiritual. Right. So if you're worried about that, you, that is excellent evidence that you haven't done it. Right. Well, and I mean, back to your point uh, earlier, the offensiveness of the gospel will eventually drive you away. You won't want to be there week mm-hmm. after week, continually being offended and, and cut up by the gospel um, if, if you're not a gospel person. You'll, you'll just bounce. I mean, that is what you would do for sure. Okay, so if there are any unbelievers who may be listening to this podcast, um, what would you want them to know? Uh, everything we've been everything we've been talking about, especially in the first you know ten minutes of of our conversation, you know, I would want them to know that they were created by God. You're not just a cosmic accident. You're not just a concatenation of chromosomes that accidentally you know happened to come together for a few years. Uh, you're created by God with a grand purpose. The, the, the problem is just that you, me, all of us individually and together as a whole human race have just royally messed that up uh, because we rebelled against God and, and that purpose that he had for us. Um, and because of that, the, the stakes are, are not low. They are high. Uh, the, the, uh, the just expected punishment for creatures rebelling against the creator, for rebels rebelling against a king is, is death. And, and that, that is right. You know, I mean, it makes sense, right? If you declare independence from the source of life, if you cut the cord, what what are you doing? You're going to die. The result of that is that you're going to die. So death is the right and fitting punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against God. But there's salvation. Uh, God God loves you as a human being. He sent His Son Jesus to die for sinners just like you and me. Um, and he calls, calls you and me and everybody else to bow our knee to him, trust in him to, to save us. It's like jumping. It's like, jump, I, I was watching these guys, I was in Twin Falls, Idaho the other day and watching these guys jump off a bridge base jumping and they'd fall, you know, however many feet and then pop the parachute. Those dudes are putting their faith in that parachute because if that thing doesn't open, it's going to, they're going to splatter, uh, you know, at the bottom. So, but they jump off, they trust the parachute to save them. They pull the ripcord and they float to the ground. Mm. Same thing with Jesus. You know, when you put your faith in Jesus, you're not, that does not mean you're saying, I believe that this guy existed, even though there's no evidence for it. That, that's not what you're saying. There's plenty of evidence for Jesus. There's evidence of the resurrection. It's all true. It's as true as the fact that George Washington was first president of the United States. Mm. That's not what faith means. Faith is saying, yep, I really think he he is who he said he is, and he can do what he said he can do. And now I'm going to trust that mm-hmm. in the same way those dudes trust that parachute when they jump off the bridge. And you're saying, 
You know, I got nothing else. I got nothing else that's going to save me. There's no cushion at the bottom. There's nothing. It's Jesus or nothing. Jesus or splat for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what it means to, to trust in him. But Greg, you don't know me. I'm, I'm too broken. I've been hurt by everyone I've ever known. I've been hurt by the church. I'm too sinful. All of this good news is great for people like you, but God can't save me. Uh, you just need to read more of the Bible. You need to see the kinds of people that, that, that Jesus did save. They were wrecks uh, in every single way. Uh, so, you know, and, you know, and ironically, there's, there's, there, there would be a certain amount of pride that would have to be dealt with if, if you're going to say, I, of all people, am beyond the, the hand of the creator of the universe. Oh, come on. Mm-hmm. I, th- this God is way bigger than you. He's way bigger than any sin you've ever committed. And uh, it is just, you start reading the Bible, it is astonishing what Jesus is willing to forgive. Uh, and, and you're not beyond that. Yeah. Amen. Amen. All right, Greg. Well, thank you for this uh, helpful conversation. Um, thank you for just being so thorough and pastoral with us in your answers. I really appreciate your time and uh, just your desire to be with us today. Yeah. Thanks, brother. It's a, a good conversation. Enjoyed having it. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again. Thanks again.